Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The legend of the Charter Oak in Connecticut history is often taught in local schools. But what about the Charter Oak Monument? Coming up, we hear from the Hartford Current's Ken Gosselin about an effort in the Sheldon Charter Oak neighborhood to elevate awareness about the forgotten pillar. We'll also hear about a mosquito-borne virus known as Triple E that has affected the schedule of after-school and sports activities at some schools. How concerned should you be as warm temperatures follow us into fall? We'll find out. First, calls to impeach President Trump have grown louder after a whistleblower complaint alleges Trump asked the president of Ukraine to investigate a political rival, former Vice President Joe Biden. And that request was tied to U.S. military aid to Ukraine. Joining me now on the phone to talk about how Congress should respond is U.S. Representative Jim Himes. He represents Connecticut's 4th District. He also serves on the House Intelligence Committee. Congressman Himes, welcome to the show. Good morning, Liz. I wanted to let our listeners know they can also join the conversation, 888-720-WMPR. That's 888-720-9677. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Now, let's talk first about uh, some of what uh, you have said. Uh, Yesterday on CNN, you described this call between President Trump and the president of Ukraine as an impeachable offense. What do you mean by that? Well, um, it's it's sort of obvious on the face of it, and, we, and, I, and I should add that we still don't know the facts about what happened in that call. We know what the president said happened, that it was apparently a perfect call, um, and you know we have people around the president who um, are telling the press that it was of concern, and then we have a whistleblower complaint. We don't know exactly what is in the whistleblower complaint because the administration is unlawfully keeping that from Congress. By the way, that last part, unlawfully keeping that from Congress, that in and of itself is uh, an impeachable offense. Um, But obviously, um, you know, you you don't need to be a lawyer to understand that if you ask a foreign leader to dig for dirt on your political opponent, um, that alone is conceivably an an impeachable offense. It's certainly a terrible Uh, breach of the public trust. And of course, if the implication or if the explicit statement was that that, uh, military aid to Ukraine might be held up, that's not just an impeachable offense. That, of course, is a gift to the nation of Russia, which, as you know, is in conflict with Ukraine right now. So again, it's not hard to see why, if all of these allegations are true, this is just disastrous behavior on the part of the president. Uh, you mentioned that it's obvious, but uh, we're hearing just uh, you know some of the Connecticut delegation finally coming around, Congressman Himes, to the idea that President Trump should be impeached. But that's just uh, a few members. A lot more needs to happen in the process uh, to get to that point. Uh, what do you also think, uh, Congressman Himes, uh, when we hear about how President Trump has described uh, that call to the Ukrainian president? Uh, let's hear a little clip about that. We're supporting a country. We want to make sure that country is honest. It's very important to talk about corruption. If you don't talk about corruption, why would you give money to a country that you think is is corrupt? What do you think of his response, Congressman? Well, it's one of these things with, with, with Donald Trump. He's, he's enormously successful at taking your eye off the ball. Um, and what I mean by that is at any other time in history, 
the first words out of the president's mouth on Ukraine would be recalling the fact that Russia stole Crimea from them, just rolled right in and took a piece of the country, uh, and that Russia is um, creating instability in the eastern part of Ukraine. But no, Donald Trump um, is focusing on corruption because he is hopeful. And I mean, let's, let's not argue about this. We've, we know this man. He is desperately hopeful um, that the American people will question whether uh, Joe Biden um, is somehow involved in corruption. Despite the fact that there's no evidence that he is, the president is trying to tar one of his political rivals. Uh, give us a, a better timeline of, of this situation. As you know, as member of the House Intelligence uh, Committee, uh, this uh, reports again of President Trump freezing aid to Ukraine. When was that made, uh, this uh, freezing the aid before the call? How far in advance? Well, so, uh, again, the Congress has not been briefed on this, and it may be the subject of the whistleblower complaint that is being withheld from Congress. So all I can do is kind of play back for you what the media has gathered um, with a number of apparently high-placed sources, but it would appear, if the press uh, reports are to be believed, that there may have been as many as eight attempts on the part of the president to get the new president of Ukraine to investigate the Biden uh, 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 Joe Biden's son's activities in the Ukraine, and that some of those calls and attempts um, were coincident in time with um, a decision to um, slow the commitment of military aid. Military aid, by the way, which the Congress has voted to provide to the Ukraine, um, and possibly even um, uh, and again, these are these are allegations. These are press reports. Um, you know, possibly even uh, to link the two. So again, it's not hard to see why that is 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 corrupt activity, uh, and it's therefore not hard to understand why the ground around impeachment is beginning to shift pretty dramatically here in the Capitol. Congressman Jim Himes is on the phone with us here on Where We Live. He represents Connecticut's fourth district, also a member of the House Intelligence Committee. If you have a question about the process moving forward, as uh, Congressman Himes just mentioned, uh, calls to impeach Trump uh, starting to escalate. You can join the conversation, 888 or find us on Twitter and Facebook at Where We Live. Uh, what do we know about the president of Ukraine? What has he said about the situation, Congressman Himes? Well, of course, um, the president is a new president. Um, colorful history. Apparently, he was a comedian and, and did other things um, uh, outside of the political realm before he became president. Uh, we don't know a lot about him because he is a new president. Now, again, imagine what it is like for a new president to, uh, you know, have the president of the United States uh, call you up and say, uh, you know, beautiful car you got out there. Shame anything should happen to it. Um, that would be quite a dramatic thing for, uh, for, for any president, much less one who's brand new. One fact that we do know is that the Ukrainians have said... Um, that there is no evidence that there was any wrongdoing on the part of Joe Biden's son. Um, apparently, this was looked into. There was a history of investigation of the oligarch who owns one of the companies that apparently Joe Biden's son uh, did some work for. But uh, the Ukrainians are saying that there's, 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 there's no evidence that there was any sort of corrupt intent or interference there. I mentioned you sit on the House Intelligence Committee. Uh, Acting Director of National Intelligence Joseph McGuire so far has refused to share this whistleblower's complaint with Congress as required by law. Uh, I understand there is a hearing this Thursday. Is he expected to testify? Uh, he is expected to testify. We expect him to come um, for what is scheduled to be an open hearing on Thursday, yes. And he's got to obviously do two things. Uh, number one, provide the whistleblower report. Um, again, there is zero ambiguity in the law. It says that the 
DNI shall convey to Congress the uh, the um, whistleblower report. There's no conditions about if the if the DOJ agrees that it should happen or if you agree that it should happen. So he needs to do that so that we can stop guessing around what um, is in that report. And by the way, the president says that this whole issue is perfect and it was all done above board. If that's true, let's get the report and let's move on. Uh, and then he needs to explain uh, why it was he took the decision uh, to stop that report from getting to Congress in contravention of the law. You know, this is a this is another one of the profoundly disturbing things of this administration. You know, you saw Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State. You saw Steve Mnuchin, the Secretary of the Treasury, on TV um, uh, making unsubstantiated allegations against Joe Biden, pushing the Joe Biden in Ukraine story. Here you have an acting DNI who would appear to have acted uh, in political support of the president. Because, uh, again, the law is not in any way unclear. So we need to understand and stop these senior administration officials. By the way, you know, Attorney General Barr included, who think that their job description is the defense of the President of the United States rather than the service of the American Republic. So we're going to have some pretty tough conversations about that with uh, with the acting DNI. I mentioned uh, earlier uh, you were uh, among the first uh, members of Congress to say you support impeachment. Well, among the Connecticut delegation, uh, we're now hearing strong words from U.S. Senator Chris Murphy, also Representatives DeLauro and Larson. Uh, Senator Chris Murphy calling this the most serious moment of the Trump administration uh, to date. How do you respond uh, to uh, this change of perspective from your uh, colleagues? Well, the, the change is not surprising. I mean, um, it's really hard to look the American people in the eye after the two-plus years of behavior that the president has demonstrated, the 10 counts of possible obstruction of justice as detailed in the Mueller report, the dripping sleaze around people like Paul Manafort and Michael Flynn and all of the people who were in jail or under indictment that were around the president, and now this issue in Ukraine. It's hard to look the American people in the eye and say, yeah, Congress really shouldn't do anything right now. Um, now, I wasn't one of the early people to call for impeachment. I represent a purplish district, um, and um, you know the sentiment in my district is mixed. Um, but it's really important to understand where people are coming from here. You know, uh, has the president's behavior crossed an impeachable threshold? Of course it has. That box has been more than ticked long ago. Um, uh, you know, does history, does a sense of, does Congress stand up to a rogue president demand impeachment? Yes, it does. And those two things caused me to call for an impeachment inquiry. But on the other side of this, and it's important for people to understand this, um, impeachment is not mandated by the Constitution. It is at the discretion of the Congress, and the Congress is a political body. So the Speaker is not wrong to take into account public sentiment. Um, and she talks about it every single day. Um, public sentiment is really, really important to things that you do, particularly big things that you might do, like impeachment. Um, and so, you know, there is an argument to be had here. But of course, when the president behaves the way he did, the argument against impeachment begins to pale um, for the necessity of doing so. You mentioned uh, taking into account public sentiment, uh, referencing uh, purple uh, parts of the country, because there is a real calculus that House Speaker Pelosi and others um, are weighing in terms of what happens in the 2020 presidential race. In the past, uh, she has said, and uh, Congresswoman DeLauro has agreed with her, among others, that uh, the focus should be on defeating Trump uh, at the ballot box and impeachment could could alienate ver voters and and see him get another win uh, on come November 2020. Um, that's that's correct. At the sort of most blunt um, level, 
that's correct. And again, the speaker talks appropriately about public sentiment. She doesn't talk a lot about the 2020 election. But I mean, let's be blunt about this. Um, the president will not be removed through an impeachment process. He will be removed if and when he is defeated in November of 2020. That's it. And I sometimes ask my activists that are very aggressive for impeachment, um, and, and remember, I have called for an impeachment inquiry. I say, look, imagine you had a button in front of you, and you could push that button, and the president would be impeached. He would remain in office, but it would reduce your probability of beating him or, or, or remove your probability of beating him in 2020. Would you push that button? And that gets people to thinking because, you know, the reality is this presidential election will come down to a few states, largely in the Midwest, in which impeachment is at best um, ambiguous. Now, in my mind, personally, I think the demands of history and the behavior of this president require that we take some risk in favor of reestablishing the balance and the rule of law. But it is not an unfair consideration to say, but wait a second, is that going to help us do the one thing that we can do to remove him from the presidency, which is um, to, to, to defeat him in 2020? That is a fair question. And when you mentioned that he will, um, impeachment will not move forward, it's because uh, not, not only does it need a simple majority in the House, but it's the, the Senate that um, also needs to vote on this. And right now, uh, with a Republican-led Senate, uh, there's no clear path to impeachment, Congressman Himes? <laughs> No clear path. Well, that's one way to put it. Another way to put it would be there's a snowball's chance in hell that the, that the Senate would uh, would uh, convict. Look, one of the really sad aspects of, of where we are today um, is that the Republican Party and the and the members of the Republican Party, people like Lindsey Graham that we used to look up to as, as people who were independent and really had their eye on the good of the Republic, um, the remaining Republicans here, because remember, in the House at least, almost 40% of the Republicans who were here when Donald Trump became president are gone. The remaining Republicans have abandoned the amazing grand party they used to be in favor of joining this cult of personality in which the de which the president is defended at all costs and it makes me sad for their legacy you know i mean 10 years from now 20 years from now how um susan collins or or lindsey graham or 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 republicans who didn't stand up to the barbarism of this presidency um will justify that to themselves uh, you've alluded to this, but again, uh, if impeachment is not the path that Congress takes, the precedence that it sets, uh, again, the allegations that the president um, was uh, asking uh, a leader of a foreign government uh, for help uh, getting uh, dirt on a potential uh, presidential rival, uh, a lot of frustration um, from constituents that you're hearing from, uh, Congressman Himes? Enormous frustration. Um, again, speaking frankly, um, uh, the hesitancy of the Congress to proceed with impeachment. And I'm talking about Democratic-leaning people here and activists. In combination with um, an optically awful um, interview of Corey Lewandowski, in which he showed complete disdain for the Congress of the United States, with no apparent sanction, no punishment that was swift and sure, um, has really eroded um, and concerned and angered um, the Democratic activist base for, for reasons I fully understand. Um, uh, you know, this is a moment when a co-equal branch of government needs to be rising in proportion and with the same strength of the wrongs being committed to right those wrongs. And right now, um, people aren't seeing that. U.S. Represent Representative Jim Himes, he represents Connecticut's 4th District, also serves on the House Intelligence Committee, a hearing uh, set uh, before that committee on Thursday. Representative Himes, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much.
This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. After the break, we're going to shift our focus back to Connecticut, where public health officials are warning residents to avoid mosquitoes because of a potentially deadly virus they carry. You can join our conversation, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The great weather continues as we enjoy the first days of fall, but the warmer temps mean mosquitoes are still around. And that concerns public health officials who've been warning state residents to avoid mosquito bites from dusk till dawn. That's because some mosquitoes in the state have tested positive for a virus that can lead to death. To tell us more, joining us by phone is Dr. Richard Martinello, Associate Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the Yale School of Medicine and Medical Director for Infection Prevention at Yale New Haven Health. Uh, Dr. Martinello, uh, welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you. Good morning. Uh, We're talking with you because uh, late last week, state health officials issued a statement uh, saying a Connecticut resident died from a mosquito-borne virus known as triple E. Uh, Also, another resident uh, has been hospitalized uh, because of this virus. Tell us more. What is triple E? So triple E uh, stands for Eastern Equine Encephalitis. And this is an infection that's due to a virus of the same name. And for most people who get infected with this virus, they may have a very mild illness or one that doesn't even uh, come to their attention. Um, But for a small percent of people who get infected with this virus, they could have a very severe uh, infection of their brain uh, that leads to what we call encephalitis, where the actual tissue of their brain is infected uh, by the virus. And that can very quickly lead to them uh, becoming very confused in addition to having a fever and a headache and very rapidly progress uh, to even death. And we see that about uh, 30 to 70 percent of people who develop a brain infection due to this virus uh, will die. And those uh, who survive, unfortunately, oftentimes have very significant uh, neurologic problems uh, that may even be lifelong. Mm. Uh, when you mentioned that uh, triple E, again, is Eastern Equine Encephalitis, uh, something that um, is being found more, uh, more often in this part of the country, what do we know, Dr. Martinello? Uh, so this is a virus that was originally identified back as early as the 1930s, and there was a, a large outbreak of it uh, in the New Jersey area back in the late 1950s. Uh, we've been seeing it here in this area for a, a number of decades, but but it is very rare to see infections due to it. Typically, each year across the United States, we may only see about a half a dozen infections, but we do know that some years we have very few, and other years we have more. And this is this is certainly a year where many more infections have been being seen, uh, not only here in Connecticut. Um, but also uh, elsewhere in New England, uh, particularly in Massachusetts and New Hampshire. Uh, so when someone is bitten by a mosquito that carries this virus, you know, how long is it uh, in a person's body? And you mentioned it, it, can, it impacts uh, people differently. Do we know why? 
Uh, well, usually what we see is it's those who are more at the extremes of age who are more likely to develop an, a brain infection due to this virus, especially you know, those who are, are uh, younger um, and those who are um, on the older side. Um, but we really don't have a complete understanding to know uh, why it leads to a brain infection in some people, but a very mild infection in others. Uh, it's, again, called Eastern Equine Encephalitis. So this is a, a virus that also impacts horses. Uh, also fatal uh, if they are uh, bitten by a mosquito with this virus? Yes, yeah, they absolutely can be. And, and typically we, we see horses becoming infected with severe infections much more often than we see humans becoming infected. And that's oftentimes the clue to our, our public health partners uh, that there may be eastern equine encephalitis virus circulating in, in their community. But horses, uh, do they have a vaccine for this uh, to prevent uh, horses from falling ill? Yes. Yeah, I do understand that there is a vaccine for horses. Um, when uh, we talk about, again, uh, this uh, virus uh, being found um, in some mosquitoes that have been tested in the state, um, is this something that you've been hearing from your patients? Are they worried about or do people not really understand uh, the danger of, of Tripoli? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think our patients are, are hearing about it uh, through the news and through programs such as, as your own. And uh, they're taking it, I think, very seriously, and, and it's leading to a lot of questions being asked about uh, what can I do to protect myself, for example. Uh, you mentioned earlier that once someone is infected with triple E, uh, the percentage of people where it can lead to encephalitis is, is high? Uh, it, well, it's actually pretty low. You know, we, we don't really have a very good understanding of how often people get infected. Uh, there is some data suggesting that among adults, about 2% of the time, it can lead to very severe brain infections. And among young children, it's about 6% of the time. Um, what we know most about uh, Eastern equine encephalitis is that when people do develop that brain infection, when they do develop encephalitis, that is a very severe, oftentimes fatal infection. I see. So if the encephalitis develops, then it can lead to a fatality. Correct. Um, if someone um, uh, does not uh, pass away uh, after getting encephalitis, what does it do to their quality of life, Dr. Martinello? Well, th- th- there's a, a wide degree of disabilities that they could have. Um, typically, uh, it leads to um, some permanent uh, loss in their uh, cognitive abilities, um, and it can also uh, lead to other problems with um, their their motor function and um, how well I, their their nervous system mm-hmm. is really working overall. And so I, I think that the spectrum of different types of disabilities is very broad there, and it's it's difficult to actually pinpoint one type of typical problem for those who do survive. Uh, Dr. Martinello, I mentioned that uh, one person has died from triple E in Connecticut. Another one is hospitalized. Do we know if of those uh, two individuals are uh, older residents or young? Uh, we don't have a lot of information about uh, those individuals, so I, I'm not able to answer that question. 
Uh, today we're talking about Triple uh, E again. This is Eastern Equine Encephalitis. Uh, public health officials in the state of Connecticut, as well as other states uh, along in the Northeast, uh, warning residents uh, to be careful, uh, to be wearing mosquito repellent because of uh, mosquitoes that have tested uh, positive for Triple E, uh, something that can lead to encephalitis in some individuals. We wanted to bring into the conversation now uh, Glenn Lunger Eni, who is executive director of the Connecticut Association of Schools and Connecticut Interscholastic Athletic Conference. Uh, Glenn, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you. Uh, so we're talking with you because, uh, again, uh, the weather has been beautiful. And now that school's in session, uh, there's lots of after-school activities, uh, sports activities. But with uh, concerns about Tripoli, how have school districts responded uh, to uh, this concern? Thank you. Uh, yes, it's rare in athletics that we hope for cold weather. But uh, in this case, it certainly would provide some relief for the communities that are being affected. And uh, we have had a few communities, about 10 to 12, uh, in the uh, areas where this would be a primary concern, have adjusted their athletic schedules for practices and games uh, to complete those activities earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you say um, this many, uh, up, to, up to 12 uh, districts that have altered their schedules, has this happened before? Not to our knowledge. Uh, there, there have been times that, uh, again, just based on various weather conditions, that games often get moved up, particularly during the winter months when we see bad weather coming in. But uh, for the um, prevention or, or the concern of Tripoli, uh, this is the first to my knowledge that we've done this. And these school districts, are they primarily in the southeastern part of the state? That's correct. Yeah, in the same areas that the uh, that your previous guest, the doctor, had uh, described. Uh, with uh, concern about uh, moving up uh, schedules, have you been hearing from parents? Uh, you know, are they concerned as well, or um, is everyone pretty happy that this has been ma- this change has been made, and at the same time putting on more mosquito repellent? I think the school districts have done an outstanding job of being ahead of this and really communicating well with parents and the athletes of what their uh, their thoughts and their concerns are in, in proactively moving games. So most of the conver- um, communication we've had has been with the athletic directors and the principals from the various schools. And uh, again, while this is not a statewide issue, we certainly respect the concern that the local communities who may be affected by this have and uh, have worked with them to assist in any way that we could. But really, the the, um, the individual school districts and communities have done an outstanding job of working with their, uh, their stakeholders. Uh, we heard from Dr. Martinello earlier that uh, Eastern uh, equine encephalitis, uh, uh, this has actually uh, risen a bit in a few years. And so do you feel like this may become the norm where these uh, activities uh, for certain districts uh, will be moved up? We have a great relationship with the Connecticut State Medical Society Sports Medicine Committee, and we often review issues uh, such as this to make sure that we're on top of it. Uh, At this time, uh, again, it doesn't appear that it is something that uh, would be a statewide issue, uh, but certainly seeing the growth of it in New England is a topic that uh, we will continue to discuss and stay on top of in the years to come. Uh, this is where we live. Again, uh, we're focusing in on concerns about uh, Triple E. Uh, Connecticut Public Radio recently spoke with Dr. Theodore Andriotis, who's director of the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station. Uh, here's what he had to say about the virus and its presence in Connecticut. As a note of caution, we're saying the entire eastern half of the state is probably under a moderately high risk, okay, and that will continue right straight through until the first hard frost. 
Uh, Dr. Richard Martinell, I wanted to bring you back into the conversation again, Associate Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the Yale School of Medicine. Do we know why this uh, is more of a concern in southeastern Connecticut? Uh, th- that has typically been uh, the area in Connecticut where we have seen most of the activity of this virus in the past. Um, usually this is a, a virus that is uh, spread by mosquitoes that like swampy areas. But, of course, we have some swampy areas uh, throughout the state. Um, why we see it more in, in that, those southeastern areas um, is, is unclear. Uh, we got a Facebook comment from Jill uh, who writes, my daughter's uh, Cub Scout camping trip was canceled due to triple E concerns. Uh, disappointing, but uh, better safe than sorry. Uh, I wanted to um, add, Dr. Martinello, um, if our listeners are hearing that this seems to be more of an issue in southeastern Connecticut, considering uh, the mosquitoes have tested positive in that region. Is there concern that um, if you're in central or northern Connecticut, you may not be taking this uh, this uh, warning to heart? Should they also be being careful? between dusk and dawn. Yeah, I, th- I think it, it, even in those other areas, it's, it's still important to uh, be careful and take precautions to avoid mosquito bites. And so trying to avoid uh, being outdoors uh, during times when the mosquitoes are most active, so around dawn and, and immediately after dusk is important. And then also using insect repellents um, if you do need to be out during those times to help prevent the mosquito bites, it uh, can also be helpful. In addition to wearing long sleeves, long pants to try to minimize the areas where the mosquitoes can bite you, too. Uh, we're focusing a lot of attention on triple E, uh, but uh, West Nile is also something that we hear about uh, each year. Is that more of a concern than triple E? Uh, West Nile virus uh, has been around uh, in our state since about 1999-2000 now, and um, we do continue to see occasional patients who develop infections due to West Nile virus. Some of them can potentially be severe, but for those who do uh, develop infections due to West Nile virus, the severity of disease typically is markedly less than what we see with eastern equine encephalitis virus. So our concern is really now primarily with eastern equine encephalitis virus. Uh, Again, Dr. Richard Martinello is Associate Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the Yale School of Medicine, also Medical Director for Infection Prevention at Yale uh, New Haven uh, Health. Uh, We heard you uh, list some precautions that uh, people should take. Uh, uh, Do we know if mosquitoes are also more attracted to particular people or if people are wearing perfume, other, other precautions that they should take? You know, it, it does seem to be the case that mosquitoes, uh, like some individuals more so than others, uh, why that may be is really unclear. Um, it has been recommended that uh, we do try to avoid um, perf- perfumes or lotions that have uh, scent to them uh, because that may actually attract mosquitoes more. Um, so it is recommended that we avoid uh, those products that have uh, scents and favor unscented products. And we heard from uh, Dr. Andriotis uh, saying that this is a concern up until the first hard frost. So uh, when we hear that, um, where, when is that happening in October? How many more weeks should people be uh, really uh, paying attention uh, to their habits outside? Uh, well, I can't, I can't really tell you exactly when that hard frost is going to occur. But, of course, uh, now that we're into fall and with winter approaching, it, it will occur at some point in the not-too-distant future. Um, when there is that hard frost, it will really knock down the mosquito population, and that will greatly diminish uh, the, the risk. If we have a lighter frost, 
Um, it will help to control the mosquitoes, but there still could be some mosquitoes um, around after that. And so uh, depending on how severe that first frost is, uh, we may still need to be taking some precautions afterwards. Uh, overall, Dr. Martinello, um, is it still pretty rare for someone to uh, get this virus where it leads to encephalitis? Yes, yeah. Encephalitis due to eastern equine encephalitis virus is, is quite rare. Um, as you mentioned, so far uh, this year in the state of Connecticut, we've only had uh, two patients who've developed encephalitis that, that we, we've become aware of um, so far to date. Uh, and actually, our, the last patient in the state of Connecticut to have this uh, brain infection due to this virus was back in 2013. So luckily, this is something that is quite uncommon. This virus is also transmitted via songbirds. Uh, any concern about uh, what we hear in terms of our planet warming and bird migration? Could we be seeing more cases in the future? Yeah, absolutely. This is, this is I think, when we, we think about climate change and how that may impact human health, uh, this is one of the ways it may impact our health is uh, diseases that are um, spread by insects such as mosquitoes or ticks as the weather changes and the climate warms, uh, the geographic distribution of those mosquitoes and those ticks and other insects uh, will change over time. And we may see other areas of not only our state, but, but our surrounding uh, states where this virus may not only spread to, but also it's possible that with more mosquitoes around or more uh, ticks around, we may be seeing more illnesses that are spread by those insects. I want to thank Dr. Richard Martinello, Associate Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the Yale School of Medicine, also Medical Director for Infection Prevention at Yale New Haven Health. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Also, Glenn Lungarini, who's Executive Director of the Connecticut Association of Schools and Connecticut Interscholastic Athletic Conference. Again, uh, uh, certain school districts, especially in the southeast corner of the state, uh, altering their after-school and sports activities because of the threat of Triple E. Glenn, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Now, coming up, you've heard of the Charter Oak Tree, but what about the Charter Oak Monument? You can join our conversation, 888-720-WMPR. That's 888-720-9677. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up Thursday, at least 13 residents in Connecticut have been hospitalized due to lung injuries associated with vaping. That's according to the Connecticut Department of Public Health. On the next Where We Live, we're going to take a look at vaping. If you have questions, we want to hear from you. Also, we're going to talk about the popularity of vaping among young people. Are you worried about your child vaping? You can join our conversation. That's Thursday. Now, the legend of the Charter Oak in Connecticut history is often taught in local schools. But what about the Charter Oak Monument? 
The Hartford Current's Ken Gosselin joins me now in studio to tell us about efforts to raise awareness about this forgotten pillar. Ken, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Lucy. Thank you for having me. You can also join our conversation. If you know about this monument, uh, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You wrote this really interesting story about uh, the Charter Oak legend, but not many people know about the forgotten monument tied uh, to the Charter Oak. Uh, So tell us how you heard about it. Well, I had uh, worked in Hartford for some years now, and it was only a few years ago that I actually myself became aware of it. I was writing a story about the Capewell factory and the conversion to apartments right down the street. And so I was walking along there, and I came upon it, and... So, okay, there is a monument here to to the Charter Oak. So what does it look like? Well, it's very plain, shall we say. Um, It's a a stone cylinder, and it has what I would call an orb on the top, okay? And uh, there are – around the orb are some dolphins, And so there's a question as to what those dolphins are doing there. Although (laughs) dolphins are found in elsewhere in the city, in a there's some on a fountain in front of City Hall. So the uh, the historians are going to be looking at the dolphin thing. I understand and trying to figure that whole thing out. So you saw this monument. You mentioned it was very plain. So what did you learn about it? Who designed it? When did when did it come up? Well, uh, the plans were unveiled for a monument in uh, 1905, okay? And the timing of that is not quite clear. I went back into our archives and to see what was written about it. And there really wasn't an explanation as to why at that point. Now, it'd be about 50 years since the the actual oak had blown over in a very bad uh, windstorm. So perhaps that could be it. Um, But uh, it was the Connecticut Society of Colonial Wars that erected it. And it was unveiled in 1907. And with a little, you know, there wasn't a huge amount of fanfare. We only had a very small story in the paper about it in 1907. But uh, so there it has been since 1907. So I did not grow up in Connecticut, but I mentioned uh, for people who did, uh, they learned about the legend of the Charter Oak in school. Uh, tell us about uh, the Charter Oak, uh, this legend that persists. I'm glad you used the the word legend because <laughs> that's really what it is. I went to, uh, for this story, I went to uh, talk to Walt Woodward, who's the state historian, and he was walking me through it a little bit. And so the 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 story that the school children are often taught about this. I remember being taught about it when I was in school. I can still remember the picture of the you know the the, the charter getting stuffed in into the um, into the oak. But what happened was in uh, 1687. Okay, we had the Connecticut colony, and of course we were still ruled by Britain. And the king of England at that time decided that he did not want the colonies to be running themselves, basically, local control. So he sent one of his emissaries here and uh, to get the charter. And so the story goes, on November 1st, 1687, there was a meeting with this official. And somehow, of course, in electric lights, all the candles got snuffed out. Poof. <laughs> and the charter was spirited away and, uh, as I said before, stuffed into this huge, huge oak. And uh, so that's really where this whole story got started, although the story didn't really surface until sometime later that this had actually happened. Uh, unfortunately, even without the charter, the uh, colonial government in Connecticut was dissolved by the king. 
uh, and uh, didn't uh, come back local control till a couple years later. So, to, so to, maybe a bit of an empty gesture, but boy, what a grand one, right? I want to point out to our listeners that Ken is recounting this legend without any notes. Uh, this is clear in your mind. You remembered your lesson uh, uh, when you were a school student. Uh, but this charter oak fell in the mid-19th century. Uh, it also um, held an important place uh, among uh, local Native Americans. Can you tell us yes, about that? Yes, and that is one of the, the things uh, that the local organizers, Jennifer Lotstein of Hartford, has been really been doing a tremendous job leading this effort to uh, you know, raise awareness of this monument. And uh, so uh, the Native Americans, this tree was very important to them and in their planting cycle. So the story goes again, it's legend, it's come down through English colonists' accounts that when the, the leaves of the tree are as big as a mouse's ear, it is time to plant corn, which of course was their most important crop. And uh, so it was very important to them as well. And they actually asked the settlers not to cut it down. So if we uh, go into uh, the Sheldon Charter Oak neighborhood, where did the Charter Oak, uh, where was it before it fell? Okay, so if you are going down uh, towards downtown, down Charter Oak Avenue, uh, at the corner of Charter Oak Place and is right, the uh, monument is right there, but the tree did not stand on that exact spot, okay? It stood across Charter Oak Place where there is a building. But in the building, there is a little tablet that says the Charter Oak once stood here. So it is very close. When they put the monument, erected the monument, they couldn't obviously knock down a building, but um, it's very close to where it was. I understand the wood from this Charter Oak uh, was used for many things, including is there something in our state capitol? There is. There is. There, the, uh, the ceremonial chair in the state senate is supposedly carved, I say supposedly, <laughs> is carved out of the Charter Oak. And uh, it's a very ornate chair if you've ever seen it. And uh, it's, it's quite beautiful. And there are other pieces in uh, with the Connecticut Historical Society, a chess set I know. But like everything with this legend, it kind of got, you know, kind of took on a life of its own. And uh, Mark Twain famously is quoted as saying that he'd seen so many things supposedly made of the Charter Oak that you could build a plank road from here to Salt Lake City. <laughs> so there were a lot of claims that a lot of things were made from, from the Charter Oak way after it blew down. So coincidentally, uh, we wanted to talk again with uh, Ken Gosselin from the Hartford Current who wrote about this Charter Oak monument uh, that still exists in downtown Hartford, how it's been forgotten, but there is an effort uh, by some residents uh, to restore or at least raise awareness about this monument. Uh, coincidentally, it turns out the Friends of the Enfield Library are holding the dedication later in October, of the library's Charter Oak Tree descendant. One of the scions is in Enfield, Connecticut. Do we know if there's other uh, descendants of this mighty Charter Oak? There are. There definitely are. And there's one in Bushnell Park. And uh, there's actually a plaque there that says that it is a, uh, a first generation. Now, it must be clear, it's a first generation. So that's, you know, an acorn that dropped and then plant it. Uh, so that's that's kind of important. It's it's a huge a huge tree, obviously. So yeah, there there are more around. I've heard that there are others elsewhere, but I haven't confirmed the exact locations mm -hmm. of them.
So tell us more, uh, Ken Gosselin, about uh, some of the people behind uh, this effort uh, to uh, you know bring awareness to this monument uh, that you mentioned that has been forgotten. Who are they? Well, uh, Jennifer Lotstein, who lives in Hartford, right on Charter Oak Place, uh, I met with her uh, uh, last week, and we talked extensively about this. And she has lived there for about five years. She moved in from the suburbs into the city. And uh, she was very concerned that whenever she would talk to people and talk about the monument, they'd say, what monument? Or, you know, I have no idea what, what that's all about. And so she really started researching it and looking at it and learning about the Charter Oak and uh, started this, this, whole move, this whole move to do something with this area around uh, the monument. The first thing she did, and it's probably maybe one of the reasons why I first discovered it, is she was able to convince the city, which owns this land around it, to trim the tree that's above it, which is an oak, but not a scion of the charter oak, <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, to trim. And so now it, it really is more visible than it used to be because that limb did hang down and cover part of it. So um, that has been a help, I think, in at least you can at least see it now. So she really felt that it was important that it's a huge part of our history, as we were just talking about, and um, to do something more with it. Let's let's you know let's make it highlighted. It could be a place people actually want to go see. And part of the plan that they have been working on is a master plan to. First of all, uh, to restore the monument, it's not in bad shape. It needs to be cleaned and a few other you know things done to it, but it really isn't in bad shape. But the bigger thing almost is this. I don't. You, everyone maybe calls it a park, but it is a strip of land behind it, which is owned by the city. And what Jennifer and other organizers um, are hoping to do is get that relandscape because it really is kind of. Uh, I don't know, the grass doesn't really grow very well there. And just to do something more with it and, uh, you know, make it more attractive, you know, uh, fix the fence that's there, a uh, few few other things, you know, maybe brick pavers. Mm. You mentioned Jennifer Lotstein is a Charter Oak Place resident leading the effort, but this mm -hmm. is not the first time that residents have wanted to do something mm -hmm. about cleaning up that area or at least bringing attention to the monument? You're, you're absolutely right about that. Uh, 20 years ago, a Lynn Ferrari, who is a Another Charter Oak Place resident who has been very involved with that whole Sheldon Charter Oak neighborhood um, had wanted to do something with the monument as well. And their plan at that time, about 20 years ago, was to move the monument in the middle of this strip of land, maybe do a uh, history wall around it, okay, which would talk about the history of the of the Charter Oak, uh, the legend. And uh, so they were moving along with that, but then budget cuts, the city's landscaper was laid off, so it, it just kind of stopped mm. there. Is it frustrating for uh, some city residents, especially those who appreciate history, to see uh, whether it's this monument that has been forgotten or, you know, we just took a trip to uh, the Old North uh, Cemetery uh, that's north of downtown Hartford to see uh, uh, the grave of uh, Frederick Olmsted um, and his uh, family. And again, that's another cemetery that holds a lot of history um, that is really neglected. And it, it is frustrating to think that you have this much history in Hartford 
Hartford, but uh, these monuments, these cemeteries, these areas have been neglected. Well, I think that's exactly what Ms. Lodstein was was thinking when she kind of moved forward with this, is that these are huge assets for us and things that people would want to come to see, and that uh, it's hard to see them have fallen into somewhat of disrepair. So that 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 definitely is difficult. Problem is that there isn't a lot of money around to do that. And for this effort, a lot of it's going to have to come through private donations. Uh, particularly, there are grants and the Hartford Preservation Alliance has gotten very involved with this in, in trying to secure grants to fix the monument. But the park area, which I loosely call park, is city-owned, and there's just city just does not have a lot of money for extra projects like this. So I think that there's going to have to be a lot of private donations that are going to have to come in, and um, hopefully that will happen. It could, you know, could take a while to to do that. They're estimating maybe three hundred thousand to do this. Uh, you know, part, partly paid for grants to restore the monument, but. The, the landscaping, which have a very detailed plan that they have pulled together, um, would, I think, require some private donations. Well, it certainly was an interesting story, again, that you wrote for the Hartford Current about the Charter Oak Monument. Tell us again, for those of us who are going to go down to uh, downtown Hartford, just so we can see this monument, where exactly it is. Okay, so you're going, you're on Main, let's take it from Main Street, okay. and let's go towards <laughs> south, okay? We're going towards the south end. You come to Charter Oak Avenue, okay? So you would turn left on Charter Oak Avenue, and you would go down, I don't know, maybe 200 feet and on the right, you'll see a street going up uh, up the hill. Okay, that's Charter Oak Place. And right on the corner there is where the monument now stands. And uh, again, the timeline of, of this, uh, again, Lotstein and others who hope to see this project completed? Well, they they hope that they don't have a, a completion date. They hope that by this spring, they'll be able to make some um, progress on this. Obtaining the grants that are available for historic preservation has its own um, obstacles. The For some reason, the monument was not included in the historic district that is in that area. So they've got to get that the monument included. So they have to amend that, that uh, the historic district to include the monument. And so that takes a little bit of time. So that there are things that they have to go through. But, um, you know, they're, they're moving. Kenneth Gosselin, again, is a reporter for the Hartford Current. Uh, we appreciate uh, your time on the show. And we didn't talk about casinos. Ah, well, <laughs> another time, maybe. <laughs> Thanks, Ken. Uh, today's show produced by uh, Lydia Brown. Thanks to Kermit Baskoff on the phones. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Learn my, more about the show. Just download our show on your favorite podcast app. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>